0: Hi, everybody. My name is Remy. Welcome to the For The Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, guys. Jen Hatmaker here, host of the For The Love podcast. Hi, guys. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Okay. So right now we're in a series that I love for obvious reasons. It's called For the Love of Podcasts. It's just such a fun and an interesting medium to explore. There's so many amazing shows out there, amazing hosts out there, uh, amazing content out there. And so I'm like, I am an interested... Podcast consumer. And so I, you obviously are. Hi, you're here. Hello, welcome. Um, And so I think you're going to love this series as much as I am. Today, I am absolutely thrilled to share my chat with literally one of the OG podcasters in our world. And if you're a history buff, I think you're going to know who this is. Lucky us. Today, we have on Dan Carlin. Dan's a veteran journalist and broadcaster, and he's been keeping audiences informed and entertained literally for decades. He is a podcast pioneer. I'm I'm not kidding you guys. He's been doing this since 2005. Did you even know podcasts were that old? What were we doing in 2005? I mean, he is just he is a lead blocker in this industry. He has produced a few shows over the years. His biggest are Common Sense. and, but specifically, hardcore history, which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, Dan is known as the king of long form audio content. And if you're new to him, here's why they say that it is not unusual for episodes of hardcore history to clock in at four hours long, five hours long, six hours long. And look, if that seems crazy, I'm telling you right now, every minute. Is as riveting as the last. And I guarantee you, I am not the only one who thinks this. Hardcore History has been downloaded over 100 million times. It is one of the most listened to podcasts of all time. And we have its host on today. Dan is absolutely brilliant and making history come alive. I mean, he really is, you guys. He humanizes the people who lived hundreds of years and thousands of years before us. And in the most vivid way, He explains all the nuances of what was going on at that time, all the different planes of it, social quirks, economic hardships, political matchups, everything, so that we can understand and relate to the people who walked before us because they weren't people in fairy tales. They were real flesh and blood people who deal with the same feelings and basic problems that we do too. Um, And so, but not only that, here's why he is one of the top in this genre. He is a masterful storyteller and he weaves in these like, Twilight Zone style twists. I mean, they're they're historically documented twists. They're not made up, but you don't see them coming. And he knows right when to drop them into the story. So I, I cannot tell you how true this is. These are not boring history lectures that you sat through in college. They're the most brilliant, vibrant stories that happen to be true. So this is what I want you to know. If you have a long road trip, If you have um, uh, a long commute where you can parse these out over a few days, if you have a ton of chores, um, or you are looking for a really long, rich podcast that you will just lose yourself in, you'll be completely immersed, you have to check out Hardcore History. Um, Or even Dan's shorter companion podcast, which is called Hardcore History Addendum. You'll just all of a sudden wish you had longer, uh, longer drive that you didn't have to press pause and pick it up again later, Um, he will absolutely keep your attention. You will be riveted. I'm also excited to report Dan's got a new book out, which we talk about at the end of this podcast. And frankly, I wish I would have dedicated more time to discussing his book because you should have seen me while he was talking about it. I was kind of leaning forward, like into my microphone, hanging on his every word, just such interesting content. His book is called The End is Always Near, and if you like Hardcore History, you are going to love this book. Um, So we'll talk more about it in just a minute. Anyhow, you're going to hear over the course of this how infectious he is. His his enthusiasm is contagious. We both kind of get worked up. We talk about the long arc of history and what we can predict about our future based on it. I mean, it's all in here. You're going to love this talk. I'm so pleased to share my conversation with the creative, talented, brilliant host of Hardcore History, Dan Carlin. Dan, welcome welcome to the For the Love podcast. My entire team is very very tickled and a little bit starstruck. <laughs> ah,
1: thank you so much for having me on. I really I'm usually on the other end, so this is a little uh, interesting for me.
0: Totally. I know. I know it's it is interesting being interviewed when you are normally the recorder. Um I have I've filled in my listeners um with a little bit about who you are. But we would love to hear about your sort of path here in your own words. So you had a really rich career as a communicator. Um, Can you walk us through your broadcast experience and how in the world you got into podcasting so early in the game? Like, how do you even explain to people in 2005 what a podcast is?
1: That's actually a—it's uh, a fun story now. It wasn't a fun story at the time, but I, I always like to mm. joke that you know, back at cocktail parties in two thousand six, seven, eight, or whatever, when someone said, what, yeah. "What do you do for a living?" It was a forty-five-minute conversation, and they still—and <laughs> they still didn't know when it was done. What the hell I was talking right. about? So, so uh, totally. that's the answer to that question. How how you end up where you go? Well, as a fan of history, I'm always interested in those kind of you know, how you look back on somebody's life and connect the dots anyway. My dad said to me once, and I quote this all the time, he said, if you wanted to do that, if you wanted to look back on your life at the end and try to connect the dots, he said, you never could. Because there's too many Mm. strange places where you make a complete left-hand turn and everything's Mm. then on a new path and you never could have seen it coming. And me being a podcaster is a perfect example of that. And I'm Mm -hmm. trying to tell my kids all the time, you know, who are so committed to trying to take this particular track and then follow it throughout their life and I say, how could I have studied? What major would I have had to take mm. in order to be a good podcaster later in life? You, you couldn't have because you could not have known it was coming. And so yeah, that, great point. it's a perfect example of how we should concentrate maybe on foundations that allow us to pivot with the changes that are coming. Mm. I mean, obviously, if you're going to be a doctor, I want you on the medical track. But for a lot of people that aren't sure yeah. what to do, I think it's better to just be ready for all the changes that are coming up. And, uh, and I think that, that my life has become a wonderful example of my dad's mm. advice in action.
0: Mm, I actually love that because uh, I, I'm in the exact same spot. I mean, I used to teach fourth grade, so I could, I didn't even have a vision for where my life was going to go, much less some of the um, formats that were going to be available to us as communicators in the future. And so I love that hold it loosely approach. Um, you know, generally, a lot of us can sort of find a North Star and then just generally head in that direction. Um, But I like the flexibility of kind of being open to possibility. So you kind of had a, you had a North Star. I mean, you were a history major in college. Um, So take us back to sort of the moment or maybe just the season that you decided, I'm going to dedicate my time to a history podcast. Um, Why history? Why does it matter? Why does it matter to you? Why should it matter to all of us?
1: Mm, that's a complicated question. Um, yep. Well, let me start at the beginning, because for me, okay. for me, history is something that's that's somewhere patterned in the DNA. I don't know how to explain mm. it. My mother used to joke that she didn't know how to explain how her six-year-old son was reading The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. It was a little disturbing in the Whoa. 1970s. You know, uh, <laughs> sure. they, they thought maybe you needed to see some 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 uh, credentialed experts for things like that. Um, but, sure. but it's one of those things where you turn around and say, isn't it weird that you end up making a living? Well, or, or, mm-hmm. or maybe not weird that you end up making mm-hmm. a living doing something that seems to have been so pre-programmed into you. Sure. Uh, but I feel like a lot of people are that way. Uh, a lot of people aren't, but a lot of people are that way. So in answer to the question, the history major thing seemed almost like a cop-out. For me, because mm. you, know, you, you I was a theater major when I started, and then oh, were you I was kind of a military history major by the time I finished? And I joke with everybody that those sound like two things that are completely mm. incompatible, and yet I use them both mm. every day in my job.
0: Ah, that's you know,
1: true. Mm. And military history—that's quite a blend. Um, mm. So, but but so to answer your question about how you, you go into different directions, when I was a history major at the University of Colorado, uh, the history department used to print out a uh, a handout that you could pick up at their at their main offices to give to your parents. And it was called okay. What to Tell Your Parents About Choosing History as a Major. <laughs> oh like my it was God, supposed to be great. arguments that you could then say, hey, no, no, I could teach, you know, I could do this. Because at the time, everybody was so, and still are, I think, focused on, you know, how are we gonna get this degree to pay off somehow for you? Of course. Um, but then I got into news, which again, was sort of, um, because hmm. I was a news junkie, it wasn't because I always wanted to be in news. And when I got into news, and you start to see the different kinds of reporters that your average, especially especially when i was in the 1980s the, the different kinds of news reporters that an assignment editor has and how they make their decisions on you know this person's going to be good for this story and that person's mm-hmm. going to that story and i was in a, a los angeles news station and so we had hollywood reporters and we had these kind of reporters sure. that kind of but when it was something that was going to be complicated deep political whatever it might be mm. The people that tended to get chosen were all history majors in college. Hmm. I remember looking yeah. at it and just going, and, and one of them told me that because I had this conversation with them in a mentor sort of sense, and they go, "Look at this guy. Look at that woman. Look at hmm. all history majors." And, it's, and and so you start turning around and go, "Okay, I see the practical applications now of of, hmm. of finding out A to B to C to D, and here we are today. So let's explain what E looks like, right?" Hmm. Um, from a reporter somehow you make or have the opportunity to make a jump into something like talk radio uh mm-hmm. i was doing three hours a day five days a week of that for years and then a listener and isn't it funny how and you'll understand this too when you have mm-hmm. listeners they sometimes just get a hold of you and say i heard yeah. you talking about this i i you know you might love to know that or this or the other thing and i was doing a show one day screaming about i had it a mildly antagonistic relationship with my audience back in the day and thinking <laughs> about what you were going to do for positive change. And there was a message waiting for, mm. I got off the air that said, do you want to know what I'll do for positive change? Let's have dinner, which freaks you out a little bit. If you think about it, On totally, you, know, you go, oh, do I really want to do this? I ended up doing right. the guy who shows up. The only way I can compare him is he, he looked like Dilbert in the comic strip, except he had hair sure. down to his waist. Um, okay. a little John Lennon glasses. And we sat down and talked and long story wow. short, he wanted to put me on the internet, my radio show. This is 1995, yeah. by the way. There isn't Crazy. even a, that, I, that I knew of anyway, any kind of files that you could do this with. But that's why right. this guy's a genius in, in being too far ahead of his time. He's one of those guys that can't wow. even share in the fruits of his labors because he's too far ahead of his time. But yes. he saw podcasting in 95. And so we started wow. talking about it and that was the first time anybody ever put that idea into my head and what was attractive mm. about it was when you were a news reporter the only way you ever got promoted or moved up in that world was to go from town to town to town you know uh bigger sure. markets every bigger time markets. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't want to do that i didn't want that life uh continually mm. moving and th- the idea that i could um do my radio show at the time from anywhere and have anybody mm. listen to it anywhere they were was intoxicating it was a little hard to believe but it was intoxicating and as time went on you could kind of see the dominoes line up and you were thinking in your head oh that thing that guy told me is starting to shape up if that makes so he put the idea in my head i was watching for it and so that helps you be in the right place at the right time later if that makes sense
0: yeah it does wow i mean it's it's so cool to look back on that in hindsight and realize the just sort of the the forward thinking um that you were privy to i can't actually believe you said yes to that dinner that sounds like a crazy um invitation you know,
1: that, that's another life thing though isn't it that that, that you do think right I, i've gotten jobs that way where you're you're not even sure if you want to mail this letter and you literally hesitate putting it in the mail you know this is how old i am right putting it in the mailbox or not yeah. putting it in the mailbox yeah. and all of a sudden you put it in the mailbox and you and, and six weeks later your whole life is different and i think about you know mm. how that happens in your life in my life and then i yeah. i i domino tumble that backwards to some of the historical figures i find interesting and realize that this is how most of their lives probably went too that's right
0: yeah these like really unexpected pivots that may at the time feel small but end up carving out a trajectory for the next 20 years you that is 100% true in my life also um and i i i like that it seems like right now all of our decisions feel always fraught and always very, very precious and everything has to, you know, be done with such intention and an eye to the long form and the long view. And when in fact, I like the I like the flexibility of um, sort of holding it a little looser and taking some risks it's just such a risk averse culture and so um speaking of flexibility before we're about to get into your exact your actual show but um one thing that you've said that i love you said wisdom requires a flexible mind which i love i wrote that down in two different places um can you talk to me about that idea
1: yeah and i think it's uh it's one of those things that you know, not to change the subject because I'm not, but I, I have a hard time trying to figure out what people have always been like versus what they're like now, right? How much of what we yeah. see around us is new and how much of it is the way we've always been. So I try to, because you're trying to get a sort of sense of what's normal for us collectively and what's yeah. not. And the wisdom requires a flexible mind thing is simply the idea that, let me, let me let me do it this way. This is how a history nut would do it, right? He'd quote somebody mm-hmm. else. Uh, the economist John Maynard Keynes, Had been accused once this is a famous story whether it's true or not it's it's a famous story so a journalist walked up to this famous economist and 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 basically accused him of what we would today call flip-flopping you know changing Mm. his position on something and he turned around to the reporter supposedly we're going from memory here and snapped back Uh when the facts change i change my opinion on the matter what pray tell do you do sir and it Mm. was just one of those wonderful things where you go OK, if you don't have a flexible mm. mind, what do you do when the data that you base your decisions on changes? Right. And if you don't mm. change when the data changes, well, then is your decision based on facts or feeling? I mean, where you get how do you, how, uh, on wow. what foundation does your way of thinking rest? And so if, yeah. if you if the data changes, I think we have to be able to change. And I think we have to be always looking for what the new data is. And and not because you don't want to be an idiot, um, being mm. able to take that new data and and put it in some sort of context so that you don't get fooled. Because sometimes, you know, uh, bacon's bad for you, bacon's good for you. I mean, you get that kind of situation Uh, going on. You don't want to change your mind every two seconds and go, well, the new data seem to indicate. But Uh but, but but wisdom requires you sort of assembling all these things in your head and starting to make judgments and going, well, it's starting to look like this is more likely, so I'm going to look at my – I mean, I reevaluate my way of thinking all the time. Uh, I don't Hmm. know if that's – I don't know how that works for other people because we can only kind of look Mm. at the world from our own viewpoint. But I'm not quite sure how I could live any other way, if that makes sense.
0: Well, it does. And it's so incredibly relevant right now um, sort of in our culture, in our our world, maybe in like (laughs) – it's stark relief in that we see a real lack of wisdom um, when the data presents information and our culture at large just shuts our eyes and ears and says, la, 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 you know, we, we want to think what we want to think. And um, I find that incredibly relevant to my work, specifically what you just said um, in my space is that a flexible mind has really been my pathway to growth. Um, although I notice that not everybody loves that. Uh, certainty is preferred. Um, you know that this is what it is. This is what it's always been, and we've got this right. Um, that's high currency in my world. Well, and, you so, know, there's some things that are yeah. tough,
1: though. There, there, and, and, and I, and I, and I want to, I want to point that out to younger people, especially, because I'll go to these speaking events and, uh, and oftentimes now, I want to say five, six times this has happened to me, where some 18-year-old has come up to the microphone Mm -hmm. in the question and answer section at the end and basically asked me some variation of the question. I'm young. I don't exactly know what came before me. I really want to be well-informed. What would you suggest I read or watch to become well-informed? And this is what I think, you know, I I consciously try to figure out, like I told you earlier, what's different about our existence and what's really relatively Mm -hmm. the same. And this I just feel it is so much harder now for a person to feel like they are informed because, Hmm. you know, here's the funny thing. When I was a kid, we had three TV networks. We had a couple of major newspapers. You know, there 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 was a very – and I used to think about this as a disadvantage. Um, And at the same time, I was never – Pie in the sky or rainbows and unicorns enough. I was in the news business, right? To think that this was truth from on high, right? Just because the New York sure. Times says it doesn't mean it's truth from on high. So if we were being propagandized, though, the advantage was we were all being propagandized by the same source, basically. Uh-huh. And so you could have these water cooler discussions in the morning, and you may have been discussing something that you know today someone might label as fake news, but it was uh, right. it was treated as shared currency, and you could have discussions mm. based on that shared currency. So you could say if you read the new when i was a kid if you read the new york times daily you were considered an informed person and you probably right. would have passed a test that put you in the top 4 or 5% of the general yeah. public nowadays an 18 year old trying to say you know i'm going to be responsible i want to be an, an informed citizen because that's my role in this in this society I'm not sure what to tell them to read anymore or watch, mm. and and I think that makes the mm. job of of sorting out truth from falsehood and all that kind of stuff um so much more difficult. Like I said, even if you yeah. we were being propagandized when I was young, there was a route you went to where you could at least fool yourself that you were informed. Sure. Now I just think we think we're informed because we read the sources that we like, and and mm. you have to be really media savvy. I mean, like worked in the business media savvy That's right. to, to try to navigate your way through these very difficult waters, trying to figure out what's real and what's not.
0: Absolutely true. We've had a couple of experts, for lack of a better term, on this show helping us wade through media literacy um, in this day. And it is, I mean, if you're committed to it, if you're committed to being media literate and careful about your media diet and well-informed, it's work. I mean, you have to really set aside some time for it, a lot of energy. It now takes much more out of us than it maybe once did because you have to go to so many different sources, um, sort of fact-checking back and forth. And so, yeah, I can see how, as a culture at large, we are probably terribly misinformed um, because to your point, it's so much more comfortable to just ingest the sources that already confirm our bias. Um, and so, yeah, that's easier. And I think that's the low hanging fruit that mo- most of us reach for. And so it is, it is work at this point. So question, when's the last time you slowed down to check in with your mental health. Uh, Maybe you've been feeling stuck and think, I really should go talk to someone. But finding the right person, it seems so daunting and your schedule is so busy, the time does not materialize on your calendar. But you know what? Help can now come to you thanks to BetterHelp Counseling. So BetterHelp can connect you to a licensed therapist or counselor online. So you can get help whenever and wherever you need it. You can talk to your counselor via phone, text, chat, video, however it's convenient for you. And your sessions are, of course, absolutely private and secure. And if you don't connect with your counselor, you can easily switch to a new one at no charge at all. I am a huge advocate for counseling and BetterHelp is a really convenient, affordable way to find the help you need today. This is a brave choice. And they're giving my listeners 10% off their first month with the code FORTHELOVE. So just go to betterhelp.com slash FORTHELOVE and then use the code FORTHELOVE and get started right now. Okay, everybody, back to the show. I would love to pivot to your your podcast because you're just like, you're just OG here in the podcast world. You are known as the king of the long form podcast, and that is the truth. Um, So the production work and the rich detail that you put into your episodes that are hours and hours long, four, five, six hours, they're masterful. They really are. Uh, I know though that you did not start out with six hour episodes. So can you sort of walk us through that progression? Why did you decide to dedicate so much time and detail into just one episode? And how did your audience follow you? Did they follow that jump? Did you have some resistance there? Um, How did you get from where you started to where you are? I appreciate
1: all the credit you just gave me, but I don't think I can take it because I don't think I, I, I don't think we, I don't think we thought about it that way. I think this was part of an hmm. evolution. And I think the fact that it went the way it did is a, is a testament to the freedom that this medium allows, right? It's a, com- Great it's point. a complete white space, which includes, yep. I mean, when you come from any traditional media and you can pick your media, so we'll say radio, where I came from radio, especially, you know, I'm in the talk radio, the AM side of things, right? So that is, a, that is an hour that is broken down into segments and you you can look at it on a piece yeah. of paper, right? They'll say, from here to here, yep. we do this, from here to here, we." so your yep. freedom is, is compressed within these tight little windows that you're allowed. And there are, and and that changes the nature of the beast, right? So one of the major things they used to say in talk radio is you cannot go below the surface level because the audience is turning over all the time, people getting in and out of Mm. their cars and and commercial breaks. So there's no, so you can't assume that everybody heard the last segment or whatever, but that influences Mm. the freedom in the medium and how it turns out. Uh, Writing a book is the same way. Television is the same way. Podcasting is absolute for a guy like me, right? So, so I'm over mm. all of the, you know, I, I no longer need to be on camera. I know, you know I'm over all the mm. things that a young person who's starstruck by the media. Mm. So, so now all I care about is how much white space do I have and what can I do mm. with it? And so for me, yeah. This is People used to say when podcasting was young, they used to assume that this was a springboard to something else. And I used to say this is not a springboard to something else. This is what all the other things that I've done that most people think is the cooler stuff has gotten me to Mm. the point where now I can play in this completely free creative area. And so when you say how long are shows supposed to be, I don't know. How long are shows supposed to be, right? Um, So the first one we did was like 20 minutes or something.
0: Right. Because we had no
1: idea, uh, you know, because the the show I was doing at the time, Common Sense, was really uh, uh, the radio show I used to do reimagined through the freedom of this new white space. Right. If you could talk yeah. about current events, but assume that everybody who heard 15 minutes ago is still listening, what more could you do with it? Right. So that, mm, so that was yeah. that was the extension there. This was hardcore history was the first thing I had ever designed from the ground up to take advantage of all that white space. And so we yep. didn't know wh- what you do with it. it was so, so it was like I put a little dot on a giant white canvas and said, How does that little dot look? And then over time, that mm. dot grew into a lot of other things organically. And it, there yeah. was the first show we ever did that um, was over an hour, and it wasn't, my, I wanted to be over an hour. There was just, the story was taking longer. I, I uh-huh. inserted an apology to the audience yeah. afterwards. And I got a lot of emails afterwards saying, You know, we have pause buttons. Um sweet uh, we and so good. so there's this this back and forth, especially in the early days of podcasting, um, you know, I ran a, a forum, a discussion board for the shows, and you would interact with the audience in a way where you felt like you knew some of these people. And they were very good for saying, I'm just telling you, this is working, or don't be afraid to go longer mm. or whatever. Now, I'm not sure that that's the same as saying, please do a six hour podcast. That's what we want. For <laughs> but, but, yeah. but it opens the door for you to go. Yeah, yeah, why was I feeling like there's some magic time that's too much? Um, And so we started thinking about this more in terms of uh, rather than thinking about like a radio show where each show is, you know, uh, Bob Smith today as opposed to Bob Smith. Right. And, and thought of them more like, I was a kid, so we say record albums. But but I mean, think yeah. about each of these as its own sort of record album project that's that's its own encapsulated thing that is not attached to any other episode um, and, yeah. and that stands alone. And that's when mm-hmm. you start saying, okay, well, how long do you need to tell the story of this particular thing mm. or that particular thing? And so that's how we got an organic growth to something like, you know, the longest episodes are a little over six hours. And that I still yeah. think that's way too long myself.
0: Well, your listeners don't and I've they by short
1: change the story, that's what we've set up. Yeah. That's the expectation level. We've screwed ourselves. That's
0: right. That's right. And that's the beauty of the, of the format is depending on what kind of podcast you're putting out into the world. You can have it be 15 minutes and not a minute more, or you can have it be six hours. Your work is so unique um, that at this point, if you shrunk it, it would be at the expense of the stories, at the expense of your work. Speaking of work, um, I'm, I'm curious how you approach it. How, how many more or less, if you're just going to sort of shoot for the average, how many hours of research do you put into each episode? Like how many different books do you read? How many experts do you consult? Um, what does that background work look like for you on any sort of given episode?
1: That's a hard question to answer because it differs, uh, sub, you know, show to show subject to subject. I, I can say that, um it's it's an incredible amount. I'm not gonna lie to you, yeah. but I don't mind that. I have this int- you know, I, I actually kind of take pride at this point in how much work I'm putting into this because you feel like you're using every brain cell. you feel like yeah. eventually you're gonna be able to turn around as a, as an old man or whatever, not that I'm not an old man now, but but you know, look back on this and go, I really tried, right? Um oh, yeah, I, I really want to feel this and these things, you know, once you the podcasting mm. was different than radio, too, and I realized this early on. If I can take credit for anything, it's really realizing early on that radio went out into the ether. Nowadays, of course, it's mm. a, it's basically podcasting, too. But but back in the yeah. day, uh, if you weren't in the car with the radio on when I was broadcasting, you didn't hear it, right? It was gone. Mm. Off into the, so no worries. I mean, if you did a bad uh-huh. show the next day, you just do a good show. And ma- That's and true. Make nobody heard it. Yep. Podcasting is like digital stone. Uh, That's right. That stuff's forever. And so once you get the idea, okay, this stuff is forever, that does make it more like a record album and less like a magazine right. article. Right. And yep. so you start thinking, okay, this has to stand. If I, if I want this to be what you leave behind, then, hmm. then I want it to stand the test of time. Now there's a sweet spot. Hmm. You could be a, a, a nut and work on the same podcast for 10 years. Uh, totally. On the other hand, if it's The equivalent, the podcast equivalent of Star Wars, or one of these Mm. uh, Gone with the Wind, or you know, and that's going to happen, by the way. Um, But but then it's worth it, right? Then you're you're painting the Sistine Chapel, or you're writing the Lord of the Rings, and it may be the only thing you ever did, but that's far and away enough. I, of course, can't work in that realm, so I try Mm. to make each one of these things use every one of my brain cells. And it's hard. And and so to answer your question, how much does it take? Well, it depends on how many sources there are, first of all. Hmm. So um, sometimes I talk about subjects there's four books on in the world, you know, main book, Mm -hmm. in which case then you have to go out and you have to talk to experts and you have to try to figure out how you're going to flesh these things out. Or then there's the first world war where you not only have a bazillion books, but you have books from every country that was a participant in that. Right. right? So you so if you really want to give a mosaic where you're showing a bunch of different sides, you can't just read books in your language from your country. You have to find. So I'm not going to lie to you. It's a lot of work. And and I used to be able to get out. Once upon a time, it was a history show a month. Then it was a history show every few months. Now I'm averaging a yeah. giant whopping 2.5 uh, major history shows a year. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah. it's a lot of work. But when you look back on the catalog, you know, in the library, um, I only started liking the shows when they started being really intense. Because that's, yeah. that's when you start to go, okay, um, good or bad, love it or hate it. I, a, lot of, yeah. a lot of me went into that.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's evident. And... um. Uh, you know, I think that's why we love your work. Um, because we maybe only get to a year. But it's in, immediately understandable why when we listen. And I mean, I, I will just sit in my car in a parking lot, because I can't quit. I'm like, well, I'm just I'm gonna sit here and let my car run roll the windows down. I don't know. Um, I can't I don't want to have to wait to come back to it. But it's such a gift to your listeners. You covered so many things on your show over the years. I'd love to know, just to date, what has been your favorite topic to research? Like, maybe the most surprising story or the one with threads that took you to places you didn't expect going into it? Like what what delighted you the most as the host and researcher?
1: Um, we did one on the uh, on the First World War one. You know, we did a series on the First World War. We called it Blueprint for Armageddon. I have all these names. These, uh, yeah. One of the listeners said they'd be the greatest heavy metal band names. All of the episode. titles. <laughs> That's uh, great. But, but what I liked about Blueprint um, was that, you know, the First World War, you had so many firsthand on the ground accounts from the participants. And Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember what I had done before Blueprint, but we've been working for a while on Roman stuff and Mongol stuff and stuff that just you just don't have that kind of material to weave into the narrative. And it spoiled. You know, it felt like a kid in a candy store for a while to have so many really hard hitting, emotional, meaningful, Mm. deep, moving uh, statements from average people involved in these in these affairs and these events that. I just felt like I mean my biggest problem with that show was I, I I couldn't stand the stuff that was ending up on the cutting room floor because oh, it was so totally, cool, you know, and so I felt spoiled and 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 like mm. and like, you know, like I remember thinking and I had said to somebody, I would have to really screw this up personally for this not to be Mm. moving and important emotionally to people because the the raw material that was out there was so good to begin with. And so I'm going to answer the First World War stuff, if only because I could still be working on that now and and, and still have not scratched the surface on all the firsthand accounts we could have thrown in.
0: What about your fans? Which series and it's probably more than one, of course, but if you just had to sort of do it by virtue of response, which series have your fans been the most excited about? I think that's a little like an ink blot test
1: for the individual listener, you know I mean I, yeah, I think I've, because and I think that's part of what makes our archives work the way they do is that um instead of being all about one like like um uh, if if you do a podcast series on the history of uh, oh, I don't know, the 17th century or whatever it is. All your shows in your archives are gonna be about the 17th century. So what if the listener doesn't like the 17th century? Well, they're not gonna mm. like your podcast. Whereas we're more like a variety show. If you go look at sure. our archives, uh, you're gonna pick stuff not based on, you might say, I want the latest show, or you might say, eh, not really interested, in uh-huh. show, but I love this. So the variety in the archives allows people the opportunity to say, oh, I'm into Mongols, but not First World yeah. War stuff. So when you say what their favorite uh, show is, I think they like the epics and they like Certain, I mean, there are Mm. certain crowd pleasers. The Second World War, sure. uh, I just think about what the participants of the Second World War would have thought if you said, Oh, yeah, your Mm. war that's a crowd pleaser, we love that one. But but, (laughs) good point, but it it is that that, that's a reliable thing where you can just say, Oh, they're really gonna, but but some of the people, you know, I always quoted, um. A buddy of mine said it was like Led Zeppelin's albums, and everybody likes the, the one with Stairway to Heaven. But some people's favorite album is that one that was everybody else's least favorite one, this, the yeah. strange acoustic one. Well, the podcasts are like that, too, and I'm always interested to hear people say what they like or don't like. It's very yeah, personal, totally. You know,
0: Yeah, it is, and that is, that is the beauty of... Podcasting is anybody can just pull up the archives and say, What do I want to hear today? Especially when they're standalones.
1: Everybody loves history. And what I point out is, the reason everybody loves history is because there's a history of everything. And so, whatever you're interested in, fashion, motorcycles, sports, whatever, there's a history. And the history teaches you the history of that teaches you the same thing that the history that you know you asked me what you would study to understand the, the life today. If you want to understand fashion today, you have to understand how it got that way. So, everybody's that's how i would teach it by the way in schools i would find out what the students are interested in individually Ah, and i would tell them to learn the history of the thing that they're already interested in because the facts that you know columbus discovered america and all that stuff is a bunch of random stuff that people decided we should know but what you really Hmm. learn is how things go from a to b to c to d and you can learn that studying whatever you're interested in
0: i am really interested to hear your answer to this one um you're a student of history. And so just by virtue of your work, you are recognizing patterns of human behavior over 1000s of years, you mentioned earlier, um, you know, you're saying what's been ubiquitous to humanity and what's new to us, and you are constantly sussing that out. So when you see those patterns over time, um, it's kind of inevitable that you'll see the same patterns playing out in today's world, the one that we are living in. So um, I would love to hear out of all the series, that you've produced in your opinion which era in history is the most relevant one to what we're seeing play out at this moment i i have a i have a guess i'm I, i'm curious to hear your answer if you had to say there's a lot of mirrored effects here between what was then and what is now what what would what would you say
1: What's most relevant to what's going on today is the last 40 years of history. I mean, in other words, th- this is what context helps with. Uh, I had a history teacher that said that um, learning history is like watching a soap opera on television. And and if you just start a soap opera that's been on television for 30 years today, you're going to be totally lost. You're not going to know who the characters are. You're not going to know their histories with each other, why this person's mad at that person, who slept with who a long time ago. And, and so you go back and you watch the old shows and you catch up. And then. It, then the new shows make sense. And that's what the value of history is, too. You find out how things got to be the way they are now, and then the way things now are now make more sense. And so understanding the current situation, uh, you know, you, you can make an argument, well, we'll start in caveman times and we'll follow the whole narrative. But, but really, I mean, if you just want to do the, the Cliff Notes version, the last 30 or 40 years of history helps us understand the trends and forces and what we're involved with now and how we got to where we are now. So in, in terms of what's most relevant that's most relevant in terms of mere images. Um, I think I know where you're heading with this. I think, uh, uh you know, the, I like to say, you know, patterns in history is a weird thing because historians, uh, and I'm not one, uh, but I like, I like to read their magazines. Uh, they, they debate these kinds of things all the time with each other and they hate ideas that there are templates or, or right. In other words, that anything is predictable or that any, you know, that, that we have great people that we have, tra- I mean, you can't, they hate the big pronouncements because they, there's always ways to disprove those things. But there are some constants, and we human beings tend to um, put patterns over things and then try to make sense of them that way. So, some of the content, some of the the, the things that remain the same, the constants, are us, right? People are the same, right? So which what the, uh, all the um, all the world's a stage and all the people merely players, right? So. The trappings change, the costumes change, the circumstances change, but but the individual creatures in those costumes are still as greedy or as uh, or high minded or as you know all the qualities that we associate with with being human apply to the ancient Romans as much as they apply to us, and then and then they're filtered through a very different system, obviously in a very different reality, um, including the ability to read what the Romans wrote, where of course they can't really read what the Romans wrote. Um, So so then you overlay that with systems. So take our system now. The United States is still, as far as I can tell, a democratic republic, really a republic that's becoming more democratic over its history. Um, So you look at something like the Roman Republic. That is a system with, you know, the the reason it looks similar is because our founding fathers of this country used that as one of their inspirations. So you combine a similar system with all the world's a stage and all the people merely players, you have the same kind of human beings, and you begin to see things that look similar to us with our with our with our standard uh, uh, habit of looking at things in patterns already. So I, I think that's what you see now. You see a system of representative government which brings up mm-hmm. corruption and pandering and politicians and money and all yep. the things that partisanship, all those things. In other words. Mm-hmm. We're not like the Romans because of that. We're like the Romans because we're people and we're in a system that allows those. I mean, if you allow voting and you allow, you're going to start to have partisanship. So these things naturally spring from these other things. And so I think we begin to see uh, there's that old line that Twain is supposed to have said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it sometimes rhymes. And I think mm, that's, that's what good. we feel like. We feel like mm. we see these rhymes or echoes or or the other one I like is that history is like mm-hmm. dipping your foot in a running river. It's the same mm-hmm. river, but it's never the same water. Um, and, and so that, that's kind of how, so when you say, how do I feel? Well, I mean, you look at a system like the Romans and you see what happened to the Republic and everybody always talks about the empire, but the one we're like, is what was there before it turned into the empire. And for you Star Wars fans out there, that's like George Lucas's template too. I mean, he's looking at the transition from the Republic to the empire, which is, so, I mean, this is what we should be looking at. And I I should point out that the most fabulously interesting thing for me about that whole Republic-Empire thing in Roman times was that the Romans didn't officially change the forms for generations. In other words, they pretended like they were still a republic. Senators still ran for office. They still did favors for rich people and accepted money for it, even though there was an emperor in charge who was really running. In other words, nobody deliberately repealed the whole thing. They just sort of carried on with the fiction for a long time. Um, We could easily do that and then not realize things were really fundamentally different for generations. And it's the kind of thing that a history book is so good at telling you about, but that the people who actually lived through that era might not see it that way.
0: Absolutely, I'm curious. This is your. This will be your opinion, but I want to hear it. Um, what do you? What would you either predict? I don't know if that's if it'd be that strong, but um, what would you keep your eye on in terms of? Um, as you say, those are, you know, relevant systems. So we can see a lot of similarities. What, what would we be paying attention to as we think about the fall of the Roman Empire, um, and, and us finding ourselves in a similar um, republic? Um, what, what, what do we watch there? What do we watch for there if, as we think about an entire system sort of falling? Well I think that's a
1: wonderful thing to bring up because I think it's the opposite of what we just talked about when we were talking about similarities and all the people merely players and the difference and the similar systems because that that's where we aren't right now because we have mm. it, it's the variables of our time right now that make this impossible to figure out and I I I recent I stopped doing my my current event show at least for the time being because I feel like for the first time in my adult life I really can't make sense of where we are because I feel, Mm -hmm. and and, and I'm a a parent of teenagers, and so I deal with this in my home all the time where you start to realize what a guinea pig Time we live in, especially with the teenagers, right? So, like we were joking about Instagram accounts or something like that. Like, what is the right age for a kid to get an Instagram account? Well, how would you know, right? What age? How old were you when you were a kid and you got an Instagram account? We have no precedent. That's right. And so we also don't know a generation or two from now how that's going to morph and change. And so when you talk about the Roman Republic and and how this might feel like an echo of that, yeah, but they didn't have Instagram, right? Right. There's a variable (laughs) thrown in there. That I also think is it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the 18-year-old who will ask me the question, how do I become informed? These are all things that involve some of the things that the Romans didn't have to deal with and that make our system Mm. different from theirs and that throw variables in there that don't allow us to predict. You know, whereas you might say, hey, if we could go back to Rome now and all those other conditions were were status uh, quo, then Mm. we could start to to figure things out, but they're not. The variables that we have in our time now are game-changing, including the not being able to get informed, the ability of the... President to speak to the public via social media. Right. I mean, these are all. I mean, can you imagine? I, you know, as, as a history nut, what I always do is imagine I'll take some little aspect of our lives now and then imagine people in the past having it. So imagine we're going through the Nixon uh, uh, Watergate thing in 1973, 1974, and Nixon is tweeting to the public directly during right. the whole thing. I mean, th- those are the kind of things that, that, um, it almost gives me a little weird thrill. That's see, when we talk about hmm. like our DNA and how we're born to like this or not like this, uh, doing that kind of weird crap is something, I mean, I love that stuff. So yeah. like, I, I, that, yeah. that's Twilight Zone stuff that I like to play with. And I always like to say that science fiction and fantasy uh, huh. and history actually intersect and meet with each other and they meet right now in the instant we're living, right? The hard facts yeah. of the past are one minute old and the fantasy yeah. and science fiction of the future are one minute away and the time you live in now is when they meet and and imagining nixon with a twitter account is where i have you know that's, that's fun stuff for me but to answer your question mm. where do i see things mm. going i don't know which is why i'm not doing yeah. a common sense show for the first time i mean I, yeah. i've been talking about politics on the air since 1992 um this is the mm. first this last year is the first time i haven't been uh, involved in that because i feel like a spectator uh because i think we're in uncharted territory and i think I think you have to be either an arrogant fool or reliant mm. on a paycheck so you have to do it to feel like you're competent enough now in the current condition to 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 have any sort of I mean how would you arrogantly think you know better than your audience yeah. what's going on now when we're in such uncharted
0: territory I feel like a spectator That's a great point. Actually, thank you for saying that. You have the skill set and the knowledge base to parse out a lot of this information and if even you find yourself kind of throwing your hands up like, I don't know, that actually comforts me because it does feel that way just as an ordinary citizen um, to kind of look around going, well, I don't know how to even compare this time to anything in its in the past because it's so unprecedented. Um, and so we just kind of watch interestingly, <laughs> practically from the sidelines just as it unfolds in real time. Um, thank you for just saying, well, I don't know. You know, I'm not, we don't know. We don't know what this is going to look like because we really don't. Living a healthy life is far more than just losing weight, right? It's about developing habits that help you feel like your strongest, your most confident self. And I've found a partner that guides me and cheers me on. And you've heard me talk about it. It's called Noom. Noom is not a diet, it's just this. Healthy and easy to stick to way of life. Noom is based in psychology. So it teaches you why you make the choices that you do, like what's under all of this. Um, Plus, they arm you with all these tools to start replacing bad entrenched habits with better ones, just really one baby step at a time. Uh, My personal experience with Noom is that it's all these victories in my life that have nothing to do with the scale. That is why this is working for me. I feel so much better in my mind. I feel so much better in my body. I have more energy. I'm developing this muscle memory for confidence because I'm, I'm seeing that it is possible to relearn and to begin making good choices for myself in a habitual way. So it's just a game changer for my mindset and then ultimately for my physical health. You can sign up for your absolutely free trial. So go to Noom, it's N-O-O-M noom.com slash for the love. So that is com slash for the love. Start making those like small manageable changes this very day. Noom.com slash for the love. Okay, guys, back to our show. Through the course of your work, as you've just mentioned, it's been decades. What have you learned about human nature um what stands out to you um and then kind of as a student of history what do you hope people gain from your work kind of in that regard
1: human nature is an interesting question because I, i feel like um i have a hard time divorcing what's human nature from what's culturally driven um sure so for example uh, i was reading something the other day and it's always interesting reading the primary sources from the time period because they're not concerned with any of our modern sensibilities they'll just write the That's way right. they felt at the time and so yeah. uh, i was reading something about it and it was a, a like a white settler who was writing about a, a native american tribe and they were talking about how cruel this particular tribe was and that they they taught their children to torture animals when the children were very little, as a way and 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 to laugh and to enjoy it, and and you would say mm. to yourself, well, is it human nature that we like to do those kind of things, or is that something? If those people act, if that's true, right? Start with that. If it's true mm. and that they really did that, is that that's a culturally driven thing, right? Humans aren't enjoying mm. that animal suffering. That's something they were taught to, and you know, so so sometimes when we talk mm. about human nature, I do think we have you know the greed, love. Uh, uh, lust. I mean, we have all the things that that we understand are a core part of the species. So if we Mm -hmm. want to call that human nature, we can. But I think all of those things are then modified by the culture in which people grow sure. up in, which is a way to control some of those things, right? I mean, uh, mm-hmm. one of the ways we make it possible to live with each other without simply going into somebody's house and taking whatever we want is through the cultural, you know, or, or teach them to torture little animals and enjoy it, whatever it might be. So, so you're yeah. modifying, uh, I was like, like, imagine taking a little teeny baby, an infant in a time machine to another time and another place and then having them grow up in that environment. They're going right. to be like those people. What I always like yes. to say is, if, they, if they're raised in the 16th century hmm. in Europe and you take them there, they're going to enjoy watching public executions because that's what people. But is that human nature? I wouldn't enjoy watching a public execution. So, which one of us is the human nature one and which one of us is the one influenced by our culture? So, Good I have question. a hard time finding the dividing line, but I do mm-hmm. know that that little infant in that other culture is still going to be, uh, you know, they're, they're probably going to be loved talk about, you know, love, greed, sex, I mean, all the ba- basic uh, animal drives, yeah. and those. that's going to be the same. But the way those things manifest and unfold is going to be determined by the culture in which they're raised and the expectations of the people who raised them, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. I love that example, um, which that, that just raises the level. i, I, I find that we tend to want to simplify categories and make very sweeping statements. But I like the nuanced approach um, to sort of sussing out what is basic human nature from what is environmental and what's cultural. And we still just have so much to learn, so much to learn from history and so much to take away. By the way, I'd love to congratulate you on your brand new book. I have a feeling that history fans and really anybody paying attention to the news right now are going to love it. Can you tell us about, tell us the title and tell us what it's about a little bit.
1: It's called the end is always near apocalyptic yes. moments from the Bronze Age uh, collapse to nuclear near misses. And basically it is it's it's a number of different stories that, you know, you had talked about patterns. I, I, I wonder what the word is I'm looking for, but I'm going to use patterns, too. There, okay. there, are, there are recurring things that in history that have happened and that we haven't had happen in a while. And what I've said hmm. is. Either they're never going to happen again or they are going to happen again. And either one of those things is fascinating. So, for example, one of the chapters in the book is about disease. So when you look at the history of humanity and disease, we live in, in a time that is totally devoid of anything we could understand our ancestors living in from caveman times on.
0: Um sure.
1: I mean I was a uh, I was looking at historical figures the guy who wrote um the decline and fall of the roman empire edward gibbon i think he had six or seven siblings he grew up in the 1700s uh every, okay. every one of them died before he was uh, an adult now that yeah. is unusual even then but you turn around and realize that a society that is is sucking up that much death around them as part of their normal lives i mean mm. can you imagine i mean the worst thing we can think of people suffering in our society now is the loss of a child right and, right. and hopefully it doesn't happen to too many people. But what if everybody lost at least one child? And what if you lost? Mul- yeah. I mean, how does that change people? Right. Um, great. Question. So, so this. So one chapter was on disease and we were talking about if we only got one epidemic of the sort that they always had multiple ones, what would mm. that be like today? So, for example, um, the AIDS epidemic is one of the worst epidemics of our modern yeah. era. Uh, it's been it's been yeah. extremely disruptive. It's killed 34, 35 million people globally since yeah. the 1970s. Awful, right? Smallpox, which was eradicated in the early, late 70s, early 1980s, killed 50 million people a year, and, right. and killed them in a week. Uh, right. And then losing every single person that we lost from AIDS in eight months a week, eight months, yeah, you know, right? yeah. all 34 million, 35 in eight months, yes. and then losing them next year in eight months. And then, that's and, right. And, wow. and, 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 and then realizing that smallpox is one of only several of those diseases that are doing that. You start to realize yes. how unnatural the times are that we live in now, where modern medicine has made that common human experience mm-hmm. something that's hard for us to imagine now. And so we were talking about, OK, are we done with that? Right, we're hmm. never going to have another plague again, or are we in an inter-plague era? So we do the same hmm. thing with several things: uh, major wars. Um, uh, we talk about the, uh, a collapse of systems, right? Things that could happen to us now, and they either will, because they always have, or they yes. won't, because we've broken the, the hmm. chain, the cycle. And either one hmm. of those possibilities is fascinating. So that so the book kind of fo- kind of focuses on that, and then it also looks at. The plasticity of humans to respond to it so we have two chapters that look like they don't belong in the book uh and they're about people so one Uh chapter is about and we explored this in the podcast years ago do tough times make tough people and Mm. so And the reason that that has to do with the rest of the book is if we ever went back to a time where you had the kind of thing where, you know, your six siblings died in infancy. Does that make you tougher? Does it make society tougher when that's normal? Hmm. So in other words, so are humans plastic enough to respond to that? And then the second uh, chapter that doesn't seem like it belongs, but in my head it does, is on child rearing. And this has to do with my idea that, um, you know, sometimes you need to be rearing Apaches, For a for a crazy Uh. wild, difficult to to come up in world. And sometimes you could be just fine raising computer nerds and and Uh. have but but if society ever went south on us and you have one of those moments like in you know I, I call it the statue of liberty in the sand moments my listeners are, are tired mm. saying, sure. last moment in the, in the planet of the apes yeah planet of the apes if yeah you ever have something like that do parents go back to raising apaches instead of computer nerds because that's what you need mm. to, to, to be successful in that kind of situation so those two chapters at the beginning that look like they don't belong that's my thinking that we're looking at the plasticity mm. you know because we always celebrate human adaptability as one of our great features mm. so so, well, what are we adapting to now? Versus, you know, there's a a part in the book where we talk about the difference in war fighting. Now you always have the tip of the spear guys that have to go door to door with firearms. Sure, but but some of our people who who, who fight these days do it from like air conditioned rooms in Kansas right. and stuff right yeah. Well, how different is that from the homeric warriors who had to throw down their spear mm. and and go you know so so that's an evolution in war fighting but you raise different kind of kids for that you know mm. where video games are part of your war training instead of kendo classes right so so that was the human plasticity part we dealt with first and then we went into some of these things where that human plasticity might be important so i call it a bunch of Semi-connected vignettes yeah. that deal with that overriding sort of looking at, at at the world. I guess the end of the world may, be, or, the, or or how
0: close it always may be. That is so interesting. I feel like I could listen to you talk about that for five hours. Like I have a million more questions about it. Um, so I suppose that just means I need to crack open the book and read it. It's so interesting. What's your thesis? Like, do you, Or what's your what's your hypothesis? Or what do you think?
1: I'm glad you asked that because that was a, a bone of contention when I was starting to write it because people told me that, you know, if you want to write a good book, you have to have some sort of argument for the book. And I said, well, I don't have any arguments, so it's not going to be a good book. Um, because... <laughs> I said, if I had an argument, I said my podcast fans would be confused because I don't have an argument in the podcast. We explore, Uh, and we and I I come from a journalistic background, so I ask questions, right? That's right. The questions themselves are the sorts of questions that have often have no answers, right? Do tough times make tough people? Who answers that? What specialty or discipline deals with that? Yeah. How do you get data for that? Right? Right. But, Who knows? But, it, yeah. but it's not only a fascinating question, it's one of those things where you can intuitively say, okay, this matters somehow, but I don't know how, and I can't prove how like like hmm. the, the example we use are are the Depression, World War II generation, right? When I was a kid, those okay. people seemed proverbially tough to us. But what right. heck does that mean? What does toughness mean? Mm. And just because you can see it and know it, how does that I mean, does that make a tougher world if you have more than... So we were examining, there's right. a lot of... You know, you had talked about human beings and human nature. So much of what makes us human are unquantifiable things. And, and hmm. if you're a modern historian, you're practically a scientist, and you have to quantify things hmm. because you have to give... You know, you have peer-reviewed That's papers, your colleagues have to right. prove stuff. And a lot of what makes us human involves unprovable stuff. So we know intuitively that something like toughness is going to make a difference somehow. But how? Yeah. If history I don't know. If history can't deal with that, who's who can ask that question? Well, a guy who has no answers maybe. So so in the in the book we ask the questions and ask you to meditate on it, but if I said yeah. I had an answer, you'd laugh and snort derisively and, and properly so.
0: Yeah, at best it would just be a guess. At best. At best. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, that is this is also interesting to me that um, I, I wish we had 10 hours, um, and, but we don't because you have to work. You have a job um, and we both have teenagers that we're raising, but we would love to know what's next for you. What are you working on right now? Are you, What series on hardcore history are you working on right now? Is there another book in your future? Is there another podcast in your future? We're dying to know.
1: I am so happy to finally be getting just back to my normal frantic podcasting routine because I I have a lot of, you know, as a podcaster, you'll understand that. uh, One of the hardest things about doing the podcast when you start getting popular is that you have a hard time juggling outside opportunities because usually mm. you're using every spare moment on the podcast. So you don't have this like spare cushion of time to devote uh, to outside opportunities true. when they arise. So I had some opportunities that I thought were wonderfully spaced out, like a bunch of spinning plates. And of course with uh-huh. Murphy's law, they all came crashing down. So my, my Abs- goal for 100%. this is to, it, those are almost done. This book is one of them. The other one is I did an immersive uh, virtual reality world war one experience and these things along with the twilight zone, um, uh, vocal thing. I did a bunch of things at the beginning of the year. I just, it was a really busy year where I was, uh, I like to devote a little bit more craftsmanship to to something like the podcast than the last years allowed me to do. Um, So I'm looking forward to getting back to job one and really being able to focus on the podcast for a while.
0: That's great. What what's your next what's your upcoming series I'm, on the podcast? I'm in the middle of
1: uh I think we talked about the red meat, the stuff that you know people like. We're in the middle of a of a Pacific asian Second World War yeah. uh series. Yeah, we'll so supernova that. in the East part yeah. three. We're hoping it drops in the next week or two actually.
0: That's great. Don't 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 hold me to that, but that's the plan. <laughs> yeah right totally (laughs) well here's the nice thing about the rhythm of your podcast is you just put it out when you want you're at 2.5 a year so whenever you want to do it you do it you drop it if it comes out next week great if not well it's your show families are fascinating right it's mind-bending to think about all the people who came before us that they weren't just people on a page they were like real people with real stories, and they laughed at dumb jokes, and they had best friends and favorite foods and heartbreaks and triumphs. And so, lucky us, it's never been easier to learn about the people in your family. Not just their names, but about them. Thanks to Ancestry, Ancestry combines DNA results with over 100 million, no joke, family trees, and literally billions of records to give you just more insight into your origins. You can even follow your ancestors' journeys over time, which helps you follow the story of who they were and then ultimately who you are. Um, you may be surprised what you learned, too. I of course used the ancestor DNA kit and learned I was about I'm about ninety percent British, and I honestly did not know that. So I feel better about like my weird fascination with all things, Great Britain save super big on Ancestry DNA with super special holiday pricing, and I promise you will be able to spark meaningful conversations around your holiday dinner table. That is for dang sure. So give the gift that can unwrap their own history, the people that you love, the people that you know are going to be interested. So head to my URL at ancestry.com slash for the love. To get your Ancestry DNA kit on sale today. That's ancestry.com for the love. Okay, guys, back to our show. Okay, here's, we're wrapping it up here. Uh, we On our podcast, we do it in series. And so this is a series about podcasts. Um, so we're asking all of the hosts, these like sort of rapid fire questions um, to wrap up their episode. Here's first one. What podcasts are you listening to right now?
1: Oh, see, that presupposes I have time to do anything. <laughs> uh,
0: it, it sure does. And I, and and I, I and understand I the I'm
1: dilemma. I'm, I'm, I'm truthfully, uh, okay. I, I I don't have a long commute where I live. I'm lucky enough to live in one of these places where if I run into five minutes of traffic, it's, you know, scream and yell and, oh, and make excuses nice. on the phone. So uh, I don't have these long blocks of time to listen to audio. So I, I pretty much yeah. read. And a lot of times, like right now, I, I'm reading exclusively about the stuff I'm talking about in the podcast. So that's a tough question for me.
0: Yeah. So it's research. You're research is what you're doing. Um. What is your favorite thing, and I'm, you have to pick, that you've learned from doing your show?
1: Uh, favorite thing that I've learned from doing the show? Well, I think it all involves what we talked about earlier about, about the white space and realizing how much creative freedom you have in this medium and, and mm. you know, I, I, I joke all the time, I, if I had the ability to clone myself, like Michael Keaton in Multiplicity, I, I have nine mm. or 10 podcasts I'd like to do simply based For on sure. the freedom that that white space allows you because you just totally. feel like, wow, if, I, if back in the days of radio when I was creating shows, I had that kind of white space, there's all kinds of things I would've done. And I feel like once you try the hardcore history experiment and it works out, uh, you kind of go, well, wow, what if I tried something in this other area? I feel like I'm still only using a tiny portion of that white space. Mm. And I'd love to explore some of the other uh, aspects of that.
0: Yeah, I like hearing you say that. That makes me feel kind of fresh and renewed in my own work. Like we can make it what we want it to make it. That's right. Um, last question. This is actually something we ask every guest in every series. And it's from an author that I love. And and your answer can run the gamut. I mean, we've had people say the funniest, most hilarious things to this. And also the like most tender, most poignant and serious. So whatever you want it to be. But here's the question. What is saving your life right now?
1: Oh, I think this is going to be a very predictable answer. But the same thing that has saved my life for a long time now, I think it's my wife. I think uh, I think she is the one that as this uh, endeavor of mine has has become more and more all encompassing, has picked up all the slack in our collective lives. And, sure. and it's the amount. you know, I, I saw an interview with Robert Downey Jr. once and his wife, and they're kind of like a a, a corporation together and together they're a whole. And I remember watching mm. it thinking, well, that reminds me of my relationship with my wife, because her ability to handle yeah. everything else besides the podcast uh is incredible and i, I if the shoe were on the other foot i never could do it and i should point out that she was a uh, an award-winning top-rated radio host herself and so for her wow. be, for her to be allowing me to do this while she mm. handles every of the banal aspects of life that you know um that that, that allow me to do this uh, i think that, mm. that that's what makes it possible and i have a friend who does podcasting like i do and is pretty popular and he doesn't have that person to help him and mm. i watch all the things that he has to do and i i, I marvel at his ability to do it Because the only reason I feel like I can get this done is because I have somebody literally taking care of everything else for me. What's her name? Brittany.
0: Shout out to Brittany. That matters. That is absolutely a co partner in your work. Would not be um, possible without you to do it. That's right. That's right. Um, I love that. Um, Fabulous. Will you just tell my listeners um, where they can find you? Good question.
1: Uh, The website is dancarlin.com, but usually if you just Google it, you can find us. Uh, We sell the old shows there. We got a bunch of shows that are for free at at all times. So if you want to sample the work, it's up there to be sampled.
0: That's great. We will have... All of Dan's stuff linked everybody on the, on the transcript page over on jenhatmire.com, all of his socials, all of his podcasts, all the stuff, his book included, um, which you'll definitely want to check out. Um, Dan, thank you so much for coming on this show. We are so grateful for your time. We've learned so much from you. You are a real inspiration to me and my team as a podcaster who takes this medium seriously and is elevating it to new heights and giving a lot of us really something to look at in terms of um, possibility that it could, we can we can make of this what we want and that is such an exciting time to be a communicator. So thanks for your time today. I could not be more grateful.
1: You have been very kind. Thank you so much for having me on and I appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Dan. He is the greatest the OG right here on this show. Um, I'm so excited for those of you who have just been introduced to Dan, because I'm jealous that you are about to experience his work for the first time. It's so interesting. Like, listen with your kids. This is, this is road trip listening. It is so fascinating. I can't wait for you to sort of comb through his archives and see where you want to start. You're going to be, you're just going to be thrilled that you now know about his work. Um, And I am so flattered that he came on the show and spent a little bit of time with us. Uh, I've learned a lot from him and I am grateful for his enthusiasm to his subject matter. Anyhow, as I mentioned, everything we talked about is over at JenHatMaker.com underneath the podcast tab. We have a brilliant transcript over there. If you like to read um, our interviews or want to go back and cut and paste anything, we have uh, additional resources and pictures. Everything that we mentioned will be linked. Every single thing that you want to find that we talked about, we'll have over there for you. Amanda puts that together week in and week out, and we hope you are using it as a resource because it is chock full of stuff for you. Um, All, of course, just coming to your ears at no cost. Glad to do it. Glad to serve you like this. Um, Way more to come. You're going to be tickled to hear who else we have in this podcast series. I know I am. I'm just, I'm loving this one, you guys. Um, Thanks for subscribing. If you haven't already, go do it. It'll take you 12 seconds and you'll have this podcast show up for you each and every week. You don't have to do any work to find it. Thanks for rating and reviewing us too, you guys. We have so many amazing reviews over there that matters to podcasts. It's so good for us. Um, and we are so grateful. We just feel like we have the greatest listening community ever. So on behalf of Laura, my producer and her amazing team and Amanda, my assistant, um, glad to have you glad to serve you. Can't wait to see you next week guys. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating. If you like it, From the whole Hat Maker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.